0: ensuring that children have access to the tools and the opportunity for success and because they don't choose to be born. They don't get to pick where they're born and their lives should not be predetermined by their geography or the political circumstances that they're born into.
1: This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen, and as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, uh, Carol, who will introduce herself.
0: Hi, I'm Carol Stern. I'm the executive director of the Walton Family Foundation. I'm a mom and a grandmom, and I've been a nonprofit executive and activist my entire professional career. I'm in my 45th year of post-college working, and I'm excited to be joining you.
1: Wow. And and actually, we know each other from the previous organization that you worked for uh, at, at UNICEF. And, um, you know, I heard you talk a story about basically your childhood and your parents and, and the reason also why you are in this work. Can you explain a little bit?
0: Sure. So, you know, I usually describe this by saying I have this picture that's in my mind, that stays with me, with with everything that I do. And um, it's a picture of a little girl and she's six years old and she's standing on a dock and she's holding the hand of a little boy who is four years old. And they're getting ready to board a ship and they're going to a country where they've never been before, that speaks a language that neither of them speak and where they've only very, very recently learned they're even going to be sent. And they're traveling without their mother or their father, but instead with a family friend whom they don't know all that well. And the year is 1939. The little girl in the picture is my mom and the little boy, her brother, my uncle. And their parents have had to make this horrific decision to send their children away because the Nazis have invaded Vienna. And The only way they can ensure their lives is to send them to relatives in the United States who won't be able to care for them but will meet them when they arrive. And Upon arrival, they will be put in an orphanage on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. At the same time, my grandfather also boarded a ship called the SS St. Louis and it's often called the Voyage of the Damned because it was a boat with about 950 passengers all of whom paid very dearly for passage. My grandfather selling most of what he owned for passage. And it was bound for Cuba, where he was going to send his children in the United States, his wife who was still in Vienna, and they would start again. Hmm. And when the ship got to Cuba, they found out the documents they had purchased were fraudulent and Cuba would not let them in. And they sat in a harbor for 40 days, and for those 40 days, the world debated the fate of these passengers, most of them either Jews or sympathizers with the Jews, and no one would take them. Not even the United States agreed to take them. And so they were sent back and ostensibly to Europe. Most perished at the hands of the Nazis. My grandfather was amongst a few who were let off the boat. We always used to tease him he was thrown off the boat, but. In London, when the boat was refueling, they were immediately put into prisoner of war camps because they were from the other side of the war, but that saved his life. He survived the war in a POW camp. He came to the United States two years later. His wife, though, did not come to the United States for seven years. And so my mother, who left her mother at six, was not reunited with her until she was 13. And my, unfortunately, my grandmother died a year later, but I knew my grandfather and I grew up in a home where we heard the story about this woman who shepherded my mother and her brother to safety. And at the same time, we heard the story of what happens when the world turns its back, when nobody gives a damn, when my grandfather sat in a harbor and the world was ready to let them die. And so we grew up in a house where my mother instilled in us you know you're you're blessed. You live in a country where you can use your voice, and that's not a privilege. That's an obligation. And so we were always activists. We were always involved. We were raised to be civically part of what was going on. And I guess the plight of children, in particular refugee children, uh-huh. is what drives me. It does. But ensuring that children have access to the tools and the opportunity. For success, um, because they don't choose to be born, they don't get to pick where they're born, and their lives should not be predetermined by their geography or the political circumstances that they're born into.
1: thank you for sharing this i mean you know it's it, i i relate very much with the story my parents uh you know experienced the second world war as well i mean asia uh they were in camps in uh during second world war in indonesia and and you know the japanese were, were in charge there or, yeah. um, and then the story of having to leave indonesia when that country became independent you know coming to the to the netherlands and Trying to start, you know, a new life there, while they were not really welcomed. So, so having to work hard. So the migrant story, and and uh, you know, when my mother told me about the lack of food, that's why you know I I am so passionate also about you know ending hunger in this world, and and especially you know the plight of of children, and, and I think that we have in common. Um, you know, I I, I think. Um, a lot of listeners are familiar with the work of UNICEF. Very recently, you you uh, you changed jobs, so you, yeah. you are now with with the Walton Foundation. Can you tell a little bit about what you're doing now? Sure.
0: Well, you know it's interesting because as I was even just telling you the story, I was smiling because hmm. at the heart of the foundation is the mission to provide access to the tools and opportunity hmm. to you know, to success in education and to every American to thrive um, and every person to thrive. And so it was kind of a very natural transition for me after 14 years of running around the globe to find myself surrounded by a family that is truly committed to and passionate about ensuring equity and access to the tools and opportunity. So the Walton Family Foundation really works in three distinct areas. K-12 education, we're all about school reform. We're all about making sure that every mom, every dad, every granny has the opportunity to find the education that is best for his or her child and to have school choice. We are also about supporting kids through that process, the psychosocial aspects, the teacher preparation, the assessment tools. That's one stream of our work. The second stream is about the environment, in particular water. And right now, very much focused on good, solid agricultural practices that will ensure the livelihoods of our rivers and our oceans. Um, And then finally, you know, the Waltons are from the Midwest and from Arkansas, and their business started in Arkansas. And they have been amazingly committed to giving back to the region that helped to build their success. And so our third stream is about our home region of Northwest Arkansas, and then the surrounding Delta areas um, and the people who are living there.
1: And and maybe for uh, the listeners, you know, around the globe, can you tell a little bit about the family and the, the, the Walton?
0: They're not... The- they would themselves be telling you it is not about them. It is about mm-hmm. the work and mm-hmm. are private people. But I will tell you they are avid learners. Mm-hmm. This is their work that I have the privilege to help see through, But it is their learning, their thinking, their blood, sweat, and tears that makes it all happen.
1: okay is Is there anything um, you know special project within those three areas that you would like to share uh, with the listeners?
0: Well, I think, you know, what I'm excited about is over the past year, we've written our next five-year strategic plan. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the three streams, we've tied them all together with three common goals. So there is shared goals for all three programs. Mm-hmm. The first is about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And unlike some foundations that chose to start new funding streams and social justice, We thought we would move the needle on the issue through the work that we do. How do we ensure DEI um, values into our education work, into our environment work, into our home region work? And how do we also make sure that all of our work upholds the values around it? So everything from our grant application to our assessment tools and We brought in a diversity education and inclusion program director, a full time, you know, high level professional whose job it is to work with each of our programs and to infuse her knowledge base into what we're doing. So it's a different approach and it's been very exciting and very interesting for me. Mm -hmm. The second piece is about coalition building. We made a very strong commitment in our next five years. The theme of our five year plan is learning and leading together. It is not about what the foundation will direct, it is about the foundation being at the table, creating access to that table for all people. And really we believe strongly that solutions are most often found by those closest to the problem. And so it is sitting at the table with the communities we serve and together finding those solutions and bringing them to fruition. So lots of coalition building. And then finally, it is about leveraging what we do. So, for every dollar we spend, either finding a dollar to match it or finding a dollar's worth of learning that will further our work in the future. So, it really is again, kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion, collaboration, mm-hmm. and leverage are the three themes. And I, it's exciting. It has forced us to rethink how we work in so many ways. Yeah. And the collaboration and the team building that it has brought about has really propelled us towards what I think will be great success in the next five years.
1: Oh, wow. Well, that's pretty impressive because, you you know, it, you, you're not that long at the Foundation. <laughs> two years, so. two years now. <laughs> well, still. Um, great you know that that i started um this podcast as a spin-off of a hundred mile walk that i started 10 years ago i i did uh, the 10th in in october um but uh so i i um yeah i started this hundred mile walk because i'm passionate about ending hunger poverty and injustice if you would be asked to walk 100 miles so that means you know 15 to 20 miles a day in a week um yeah what what do you walk what would you walk for?
0: I would walk for children hmm. I would walk for tangible solutions, and right now in my own country, I would walk for bridging the divide. I think we have drawn very, very hard lines in the sand between us right now in this country, which is so antithetical to everything this country stands for and I do believe you are you have to be at the table with people you don't agree with, not just with people you do agree with. And Tim Shriver, who is a very dear friend, coined a saying that I really like, let's stop looking for common ground, let's look for common solutions. And I think you would get me to walk if it meant common solutions. Um, he uses a really good example of of guns. And he says, if you get those that are pro-gun control, they will come to the table. With all of the statistics, they will point to the countries that control their weapons. They will show you why it is safer and why there's less violence. And then on the other side of the table, if you put all of the people who are anti-gun control, they will come to the table with lists of all the countries that do not have gun control, but have lower levels of violence, and they will put their statistics up there, and then we could spend days arguing over whose statistics are valid, which is a better approach. At the end of the day, we could agree, we all want to stop the violence, whether it's through gun control or not. So if we stop arguing on what we can't agree on, and instead put our combined efforts in stopping the violence, we would make a better world. And so I am a believer in common solutions, not common ground. And that would make me walk. Mm. Great.
1: Well, yeah, thanks for for sharing that. Um, Yeah, that's a lot to think about. So... so, um, Great and and you know i I agree we definitely need that there's so much polarization going on in the world, and we need solutions i i would I will remember this quote, and I'm sure the listeners as well um going back to you know your passion about children, um yeah, what do you see um no, okay, let me take two steps back when I walk um with somebody. Or with a group of people, we often talk about you know what's the purpose in life because you start walking, you get you know you start thinking about these things, right? And then often we we end up talking about religion and spirituality. And then it seems that the younger generation is um, experiencing that differently, at least on in on the West, uh, in the Western, uh, you know, in the US and in Europe. Um, what do you see in your community among the younger generation? Uh, around religion and spirituality and i know there is you know you can have different definitions of what is religion what what is spirituality but you know g- give some of your observations what you see and how that is different than from your own what you experience uh...
0: Uh, so many different thoughts here and i'm going to try mm. to tie them together a little bit neatly but um right now i think One of the things that I'm greatly concerned with is that we've raised a generation that is not in awe of anything, and there is a a wonderful book that kind of takes Talmudic teaching, and it and talks about the lack of awe, and it's called Blessings of a Skin Knee, and it, it impacted me. It's really about parenting, is what the book is about. But you know, when I was a little girl, you didn't even ride an airplane without putting your white gloves on. Like there was a respect. For some things required me to behave better, to dress up, mm. to be respectful. Teachers were Mr. and Mrs. They weren't first names. We weren't as casual about certain things. And so there was mm. respect until you were given a reason not to respect instead of respect has to always be earned before you give it. and. I think some of that for me is tied to religion and spirituality, is to a belief in something bigger than yourself, something you give reverence to. And I am a person of faith. So for me, that is my faith that something bigger. And it's an interesting question because my husband is of a different faith than I am. And he said to me, my husband is Catholic, I'm Jewish. My husband said to me when we got married, and we decided to have a family, make them good Jews, or I will make them good Catholics. Let's just make sure they have faith. And we agreed on that, like it was important to us that they had a grounding. They could grow up and reject it if they chose to, but we had to give them that grounding so that they had something they could believe in and count on and turn to in those moments that were critical. And I think today, so many people are, are, are missing that it, and it's a blessing and a joy that I don't know how you give to somebody but it's a it's a missing it's not a maybe it's a missing and um when I think about the divide even in our country right now how we bring that that awe back will be part of what brings us back together
1: I, I, um, so is that? My question is: So, is do you see among the younger generation that um, religion doesn't play a role anymore in their lives? And and if so, how is it then? What do you see around spirituality in the younger generation?
0: So it's an interesting question for me because I I am not. I I lived in New York for the majority of my Mm -hmm. life, and I'm now longer living in New York. I am living in Arkansas now. And I see more people of faith in Arkansas in my immediate community. The church plays a very Mm -hmm. significant role in the communities that surround where I live. So I'd be hard-pressed to say I do not see faith in the community. I do. Mm -hmm. But I do know that that the foundation recently did a study with Echelon um, Insights. We did a study of Gen Z and millennials. And Mm -hmm. it was really asking them about the American dream and their expectation could we need it, etc. We were really pleasantly surprised at how optimistic they were. Mm. Really optimistic that they could indeed achieve the American dream. And at the same time, though, they defined it differently. They defined their achievement as something they would make happen. It wasn't because they lived in a country that could enable it, it wasn't because there was faith in a God that would bring it Mm. to them. It was exclusively or almost exclusively, very much so, based on their taking themselves up by their bootstraps and achieving mm-hmm. it that's a very different look I don't know where spirituality comes in and I don't know where faith comes into that like I don't quite I can't see where it fits into the picture mm. um yeah it, it, it's interesting and yet at the same time like I know from my own children that um that they have a sense of faith so I I, I can't tell I don't see it at all.
1: Mm.
0: But it's it plays a different role, you know, growing up, I there wasn't a weekend we didn't go to synagogue and all of my non Jewish friends they, it was a given that Sunday was church day and stores weren't open and everybody stopped on their, you know, on their Sabbath and they took that day and they cherished the day of rest. Mm-hmm. everything's open seven days a week now you know like there just is no longer a stop a reflection point point. and i think that's part of what giving up faith you lose mm-hmm. and in sense of spirituality you know like i i do think there is obviously more new age spirituality that has evolved um again probably something more foreign to me
1: mm-hmm. and and just a quick question and Although it, maybe it's not fair to do, make it a quick question. But within UNICEF, you you traveled a lot around the world. Uh, what did you see outside of the US? You know, when you would.
0: Yeah, I, I think I saw more faith. I mean, obviously, hmm. um, you know, with UNICEF where I was was you know in some of the most difficult places in the world. Yeah. And I think when you find yourself in some of the most difficult places of the world, it's a. Def- Finding moment for either finding a God or giving up a God. I mean, mm-hmm. there are those who who look and say, "How could there be a God?" Look where I am. And there are those that say, "Please, God, get me out of this." And mm-hmm. it's been it, it's interesting. And even though many of us define who that God is or how that God came to be or how we came to be very differently, there was that sense of faith. But there's also the sense of the faith unites the community in in places of great difficulty. Mm-hmm. In the same way that. You know, in Arkansas, I think one of the first questions I get asked all the time when they hear I've recently moved there. I mean, it's been two years now, but um, is, you know, so which church do you belong to? That's a definition of our community. Uh, And so and I know that as I've traveled the world, when I would meet another Jew, I would know that we had some common denominator there. And I remember going to Mozambique. Actually, this is a cute story. I went to Mozambique. And I had worked for the Anti-Defamation League before I worked for UNICEF. And with ADL, when you would travel, the first thing you would do would be to stop and meet with the local Jewish leadership. And you would make arrangements for where you would go for the Sabbath dinner, for Shabbat dinner. And for those who wanted to go pray, what synagogue we could get them to. Okay. so now I'm on my first trip. I'm in Mozambique with UNICEF. And of course, my first question is, are there any Jews here? And the country director at the time who has become a very dear friend since then um, said to me, well, yes, we have Jews. And the way she said it almost sounded like we have pets, like, yes, we have Jews. And I said, great. I'd love to see the synagogue. So she took me to see the synagogue and the synagogue used to be beautiful, magnificent colonial building, but it was used as a munitions storage place during their civil war. So a lot of holes in the building. And I said to the, man who was taking me around, um, is there a service Friday night? And he said, well, he said, there are two services. He said, because half of our congregation doesn't talk to the other half. And I said, well, how big is your congregation? Well, there are seven of us, but three don't talk to the other four. And, and I, I remember laughing and thinking, I think all of us who belong to a church or synagogue relate to that story. Okay. But there was, for me, in the middle of my first time in Africa, a comfort place in being inside that synagogue. And I think that happens to all people of faith. You find that your house of worship is a place of comfort. And I feel like maybe for some people it's not religion, but then they have faith in in something, in in each other, in people, in in a conviction. Something that they find is what binds them to others. And so... The place of faith, though, in a village or in a refugee camp, is significant. Yeah. It is.
1: I, well, I mentioned hunger. You know, you mentioned children's situation. There are a lot of things going on. Um, in, in the world that that would us. Um what what is you most at the moment?
0: What hits me most? Um, look, I, when it comes to children, it's all of the above. It's a D all of the above. You know, I I spent time in forty five different countries during the time I was at UNICEF, and there were very few things you'd find that every country had, but there were three. You know. And the first is that in every single country I was in, kids were playing with a ball. It's like almost like there's something innate in us that we have to throw something and catch something or kick something. Mm-hmm. Because even where there was no leather or rubber or you know plastic ball, kids would tie something up and like rags with a string and make it into a ball. So that was the first. And the second thing that I found is no matter what country I ever went to, If I sat down on the ground, some child would sit on me. I mean, it was like my lap didn't belong to me. It belongs to children. And I always wondered, like, how did you even know that you could do that? They wouldn't ask. They would just plop on my lap. And it was like the most delicious part of my day because they did it so openly. and, And it just was a wonderful part of my day every day. But the third thing that was the same, really, is that we all want the same things for our children. We want them to be happy. We want them to be healthy. We want them to have a warm meal. Every time I talk to parents, they would say, I want my child to have a hot meal every day. We want to tuck them in under a blanket. You know, we want them to dream dreams. And we want to be part of making those dreams come true. In some way, shape, or form, if we're financially able to send them to a college, if we can teach them a skill or a trade, if we can help shelter them or shepherd them somewhere where they can access something, that's called loving children. That's called being a parent. Um, And that is not defined by geography. And I think that when I think about what drives me, that's what drives me is I am so blessed to be financially able to support my children, to live in a country where there wasn't, can I get a vaccine? Vaccines were readily available, even pre epidemic for, you know, for pre pandemic. I mean, for the other diseases where I never had to question if I turned on the tap, would there be water or walk five miles to grab it? Where I, as a girl, was guaranteed an education. I mean, I had every privilege known to people at my fingertips without question. And when I became an adult and I began to do humanitarian work and began to realize more of the world doesn't have access than does. I was horrified. I mean, yes, of course, in the back of my head, I always knew there were some who didn't, but that's different Mm -hmm. than seeing it and feeling it and smelling it and tasting it. And I am so driven by that, you know, that even the death of one child that could be prevented is one too many. And when I you know, was working for UNICEF and would get that annual statistic of how many children died that year of causes we could prevent under the age of five, I was horrified when I thought about women who died in childbirth because they had a breech baby, something that would be rectified in, in a couple of minutes in a hospital in the U.S., or I know I hemorrhaged with my last child, and if I had been in the places I was working with, with UNICEF, I just would have died, and so would my child have died. Um, So it's there, but for the grace of God. And I am so motivated by that and and so privileged that my career has allowed me, you know, think about that. I not only have all these privileges, but I've been paid to do this work all my life. I mean, how many people can, can go to work every day to do something they really believe in and make a career of it? And even now in the foundation, that is what drove me to the foundation, is the impact this foundation is having in the areas in which it works.
1: So, you know the, the the fact that there are organizations like UNICEF and the, the Walton Foundation is that where you still see hope, or when I talk about hope, you know something sure. else comes to mind.
0: I yes, I see hope definitely in all these organizations and in the people. You know, I, today I had the privilege to listen to someone who was um, an Af- from Afghanistan, a young woman who managed to escape, and and. On the phone with us was a gentleman who is still in Afghanistan, and he is there working for UNICEF. He's putting his life at risk. He's choosing to stay there. That gives me hope. What gives me hope is during the pandemic, a teacher in the Midwest who, recognizing that her students were going through something that was emotionally horrific, and that their parents were experiencing it and might not have the energy to provide that extra support, started posting just office hours where kids could come for homework help. And kids started logging on with no questions. They just wanted an adult in the room when they did their homework. She gives me hope. Um, When I think about, uh, there was a school district in Texas where they called every parent to talk about, we're going to be closing school. This is what you can expect. Here's who you call if you need help every single parent got that phone call that gives me hope. You know, um, I, I just feel like there are so many examples when I see in, in along the Colorado river, you know, when there was for the first time a, a treaty formed which amongst all the people who are working along the Colorado in the United States and in Mexico about sharing water that gives me hope when I sit with tribal leaders on that river and listen to their love of the land and the water, that gives me hope, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I see the youth of today, seeing their voice the way my mother did, not as a privilege, but as an obligation and fulfilling that obligation, how can you not be hopeful that Mm -hmm that they will solve the problems of the world. I think it was um, Thomas Jefferson, and I'll probably bastardize the quote, but he said something along the lines, if we solve all the problems of the world, but we fail to solve the problems of education, our children will destroy whatever we bequeath them. Hmm. But if we solve only the problems of education, then our children will solve the problems of the world. And I see the Gen Zs and the millennials right now making education a priority. I see the window of opportunity. I mean, in the midst of the horrific of this pandemic, if there's a silver lining, is that it was shining a light on the inequities in our education system, in the problems in our education system, putting them so that as we return to school, we are not thinking about school as it was, but instead as school as it should and could be. And that gives me great hope.
1: Education is is uh, mentioned in one of the sustainable development goals, and I you know I, I try to talk about uh, this during the podcast as well because I think it's important. It's not perfect, but as a world, we identified 17 SDGs or sustainable development goals, and I, I think um, you know that's a good step forward to make this world a better place, more sustainable, etc. Um, what would you uh, like? to share with the listeners about the SDGs. What do you think they should know?
0: I think they should know the SDGs. Hmm. Let's start with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know the SDGs. I worked for UNICEF, so yeah. you know, we all had them posted on our walls, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think if you stop the average person and you say, "Do you know what an SDG is?" they don't. Then you say Sustainable Development Goals, few more know. I I I think for them to actually be achieved it is not about what governments will do, and it's not about what civil society will do, and it's not about what the corporate sector will do. It is about all of us doing. And it is about sharing what we're learning and working collaboratively with all across all the sectors. Yet the majority of the people are not working towards the goals because they don't even know they exist. And so if I could wave a wand for hope, it would be that every school would start at kindergarten and say, You know, these are the goals of the United Nations, the the entity that unites the world. These are the goals. These are the goals that corporations signed on to, governments signed on to, and you will inherit, and you can be part of making them happen. Mm. And they will light that flame that entices them to actually become part of it. That would be my wish.
1: Great. Right. That was a great pitch for it. So, so uh, um, you know, my organization exists 75 years. Um, and so it's also a time of reflection. You know, what did we do well? What did we not do so well? You know, and what should we do in, in, in the now and the future? Uh, one big topic, and, and that's, you know, uh, you mentioned in relation to the Walton Foundation as well is around racial justice, diversity, inclusion, uh, equity. Um, if you, if I ask you to look at the NGO sector as a whole, how do you think uh, the sector did uh, around racial justice? And I, I know it's difficult to generalize and there's so many different, but I'm asking you anyway. Yeah.
0: Sure. <laughs> I, I, I think that, and I'm going to broaden it beyond just the NGO sector. Okay. I think society as a whole hmm. raised a lot of money I'm waiting for the strategic plan for how those dollars get spent there's a lot of really great things happening but happening disparately as opposed to collectively and that makes me nervous um mm-hmm. I do not presuppose to have the answer I'd be a very wealthy woman if I did um just to say here's what we need to do to correct all the ills in the world but mm-hmm. I have to believe that we could be, more um, strategic in how we approach it, and that again starts with a whole lot of listening, and that starts with bringing the three sectors together. You know, hmm. when I was at UNICEF and we were responding to, and I've told this story before, but we were responding to the um, the storm in Puerto Rico. We didn't have any staff on the ground in Puerto Rico. You know, it's part of the United States; it's not a developing nation, and yet it had just been a, you know decimated hmm. and I didn't quite know how to respond because everybody put it on the ground right and so we started looking around what could we do who could we partner with and a particular governor went very quietly to Puerto Rico and did what I admired asked what do you need how do we help didn't make assumptions about all of it hmm. as I know you're familiar with the number of winter coats we got for Haiti after the earthquake in a place where there's never winter was like ridiculous. So he, he did the right thing. He asked and I was impressed and I read about it in the paper. And I, so I called his staff and I said, hi, I'm Carol Stern, you know, and the president and CEO of UNICEF USA. Love to talk to the governor. And I called a mutual friend of mine with the governor and within 10 minutes, I got a call back. And I said, What do you got? Let me tell you what I got. Let's see if we could put our guns together. And the governor said to me, well, I've cleared out space at a major airport. I've got Homeland Security securing that space. I've got people all over collecting what I've been told they need. And I've got government pull to make it happen. I've got an attorney general on the ground in Puerto Rico already interviewing organizations so we could find valid distribution routes. But I've never done this before, Carol. What do you got? And I said, well, I've never worked in Puerto Rico, and I don't have anybody on the ground. But I'll tell you what I got. (laughs) I know from previous storms some of what is needed, and I have access to it already in an organized way. Like, I don't have to call 20 companies to put hygiene kit together. UNICEF has hygiene kits. But they're in Spain right now. (laughs) I need to get them here which may mean helping, getting some help and getting them through customs like that. You've got political pull, I've got access. I have an amazing fundraising network. We fundraise all the time for children. So I could activate that rather than you have to go find your fundraisers. So now we've got access. We've got a place to store. We know what we need. We know what they want. We can raise the money, but we still haven't figured out how to get it to them. And I said, well, you know what else I've got? I've got the CEO of um, UPS on my board. And he just coincidentally is going to be in my office tomorrow. So Jim shows up in my office for what he thinks is a board meeting. And instead I say, Jim, here's what the governor's got. and Here's what we've got. What do you got? And he said, well, you know, Carol, (laughs) I've got 500 trucks on the ground with 500 drivers. And we have fuel, which is something like no one had at that time. And he said, so, and he said, obviously, we are a logistics company. I can help you figure out how to get what you've got from where you've got it to where it needs to be. We put it together. Those drivers were the most amazing people because, again, they were trusted. They were in the community. They knew how to get, where to take it to get it distributed. They literally got in their trucks with um, saws and they would come upon a tree in the road and they would cut it down. To get their truck through because this was their home, their community, their land. UPS helped us get, you know, UNICEF raised the money, UPS helped get it there. The drivers actually got it in the hands of the people. It was the most remarkable thing I've ever been a part of, but it took all three sectors, not just one. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And and for listeners, you know, the story that Carol is, is uh, telling is, is really an example of how she works, because, um, you know, UNICEF, as, as you know, it started under your leadership, UNICEF is also working with my organization on, on many issues, and migrants, well, Afghan refugees is is one, uh, for sure, at the moment, mm-hmm. in, in the US. So that's, 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 that's great. And, 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 yeah, so, so uh, imp- important important lessons. Um, I would like to go into a totally different area because I love music and music is very important uh, to me. Um, if I would ask you to mention a piece of music or a song that embodies who you are uh, for, you know, for a, a big part, uh, which song or piece of music uh, would you mention? You
0: no, know, it's funny because I have two songs. The song that I think is a motivator for me is is sung by Pink.
1: It's Mm -hmm. What About
0: Us? Mm -hmm. And it was a piece I did use and Pink graciously let me use um, when I was at UNICEF um, in tandem with film with children, showing them and asking the world, what about us? And I hear that song and it makes me say, everybody, there is an us someplace. Mm -hmm. And we are not us until we are all okay. And so that's definitely the ultimate motivator. But a lot of times when I would get asked to speak, they would always say to me, you know, it's so what's your walk on music, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I just didn't have any walk on music and you can't walk on to what about us? It's not a rallying upbeat song, you know, it's a serious song. So Unicef kind of made my, uh, my walk on music, this, on um, the song, this girl is on fire. Mm-hmm. And I would always crack up laughing because my children would say, yeah, right. She comes home and puts her feet up. She's not on fire. But I, I do think it is a very motivating song. And I would always give me a kick every time they would do it.
1: And, and just for your information and for the listeners, uh, a reminder that you know we made a Spotify uh, walk talk listen uh, music list playlist uh, where all the songs are listed um, from from our guests. So these two songs will be added as well. Thank you. And it's it's a great list. Um, you know, from pop music to jazz to heavy metal to classical. So it's it's a uh, yeah, it's it's I, I enjoy listening to it.
0: So, I'll add you a third one that you may be harder to find onto your list. The other song that probably has played a really big role, especially in my humanitarian years, um, mm-hmm. was Head, Shoulders, Knees and Toes, because I was usually in countries with kids who didn't yeah. speak my language. <laughs> so to get yeah. a kid to talk to you through an interpreter is really hard because they have to get comfortable with both of you. So I'd always play with the kids for a while first because I, yeah. I know how important it is to my mother and to me now that mm. the stories of the Holocaust be told. And so I want to listen. And so I've made a point in my career to listen to the stories of the people UNICEF serves and to, to retell them. And I, and I do retell mm. many of them in the book that I wrote called I Believe in Zero. But So I would play head, shoulders, knees and toes mm. because it's easy to teach a child head, shoulders, knees toes you can you can point to all of that and get them to understand the words and then they learn them and it's fun and then they would teach it to me in their language and so we would play in both languages so it's also one of my favorite songs
1: right and and um i will make sure that that uh the book there will be a, a link to the book that you wrote uh, to the organization that you work for and there is always a link to the to the Spotify uh, playlist as well. Um, you know, these conversations go fast, and we are already at the last question that I have for you. And that is uh, a message, invitation, or question uh, to the listeners from you.
0: I think the message at the moment, you know, we're in the holiday season. and I hope in this year, as we are looking at the pandemic, and seeing all that we've lost. We don't lose sight of all that we have and that we recognize even with all that we've lost, how much others do not have. And that that's a motivator, that that's a a call out. That's a take one random act of kindness. It sounds so trite, but it is so true. I asked this young woman I spoke to today from Afghanistan when she came here to school, what made the difference for her, like to acclimate? And she said the biggest difference maker was the person who said welcome when she arrived, because it set the tone. And it made her realize that maybe she doesn't understand everything. Like she said, she didn't know how to cross the street. She'd never seen a a street crossing that you had to push a button. So she just stood there. She had never been in a store the size of the grocery store. She didn't know how to show like she didn't know anything. Mm. But somebody said, welcome. Let's just, you know, like, let's search for the common solutions. Let's stop thinking about all the things that divide us and let's start
1: saying welcome. Mm. Thank you for, for, for sharing that. And. I, I actually I do agree that, I mean it. It sounds you know simple, but uh, very often uh, simple things uh, can have a huge impact. You know, I just came back from a meeting that we had in Austin. I met uh, a person that uh, is in charge of our call center, and I myself thought, okay, we have a call center, so what? Uh, but he was an Egyptian, an Asyli himself, and he told me that. Um, he was so happy to work for this call center and he said you know if I would have had a phone number that I could have called when I arrived here I would have uh, many of the problems and terrible things that I had to go through uh, would have been solved so yeah. and uh, you know he speaks I don't know, uh, you know 10 to 15 languages he's so passionate about this call center unfortunately it's like it's it's relatively difficult for us to to find funding for the the call center because it's not you know quote unquote sexy um and because they think okay what what can a call center do and and but the impact is enormous so so yes you know very often uh, we think yeah okay oh, can, can it make a difference yes small things can make a difference small steps can make a big difference because they are the first step in in many that need to be taken so so um yeah uh, and, thanks for and i that think
0: up. also just to 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 listen hear the stories of others share the stories mm. well, you didn't just walk you walked you talked you listened <laughs> you know that that's what got me excited about what you were doing right. and yeah that's so it's it's all three it's walk talk and listen
1: yeah no th- thanks for that and i well i also learned in a you know, that I was not such a good listener. So I, but I'm getting, there. <laughs> am uh, I'm, 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 I'm getting better and better. So, so uh, often, you know, because often we want to tell our own story and we forget to listen then to the other. Mm. Um, at least I should speak for myself. That's, that's for me the case. So thank you so much for your willingness to speak with me today and to share your Stories with with me and the listeners. It was great. Thank so, you. So, yeah, I always you. enjoy listening to you.
0: And thank you again thank you. for what you do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to
1: walk, talk, listen, please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. I just finished the 10th 100 mile walk and I really encourage you to check out our website 100mile.org to see how you can still contribute to this campaign. Thank you.